I'm Alan Wardus, and you're listening to Think Radio. You can paint sunflowers on a canvas, but I won't give you $10 for it. But I, if it's I, by I Vincent Van Gogh, it's worth $100 million. So you have these ratios where materially identical objects have value ratio differentials of like 1 to 10 million. That's from my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Taylor. He's the director of the Western State Colorado University Master in Gallery Management and Exhibits program. We talked about art forensics, forgery, and his time as a Peace Corps volunteer in Hungary in the early 90s. That and much more on this episode of Think Radio. Think Radio is supported by the Gunnison Country Times, Gunnison's locally owned hometown newspaper, and by listeners like you. To find out how you can become a Think Radio supporter, visit kbut.org. Jeff, thanks for stopping by. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You know, I was thinking about uh, language when preparing for our conversation, and I realized that after a million hours of CSI episodes, the term forensic pathology is really uh, in the common parlance. But what the heck is art forensics? Well, it's preparing evidence which could be used in criminal or legal proceedings. Now, what we're doing in art forensics is similar to techniques that are developed for criminal forensics. Uh, for example, testing chemicals and trying to identify them and trying to identify other properties of material evidence. In our case, it involves using techniques that are more or less similar to a term that we call conservation science or technical art history. And, and let's just be clear here. The problem in this case is not murder. It's not some sort of uh, crime of passion. The problem is forgery. Yes, and attribution. In other words, developing the best possible, most accurate determination of what is this object and who was the maker. And in our case, we very often are dealing with cases of forgery, and hence that's why it's called art forensics, because the reports that we produce are designed to be used in a legal proceeding. And that sounds kind of like an Agatha Christie novel plot, you know, art forgery, where you have to bring in the, the experts to take it apart and see what's going on. How big of a problem is that these days? It's enormous, and it has been essentially since the beginning of the art market. So forever? Yes. Well, the art market goes back to uh, Hellenistic times and the rise of the Roman Empire and the Romans' obsession with Greek art. And so in the Roman times, there was an art market. dies out in the Middle Ages, but comes back into existence in the Renaissance and proceeds into our present day, and, and forgery is always a prevalent issue. And that's simply a product of the fact that the art market produces a phenomenon unlike almost any other industry or economic activity, which is the phenomenon of super prices. And super prices are the fact that, for example, <laughs> you can paint sunflowers on a canvas, but I won't give you $10 for it, but I, if it's I, by I Vincent Van Gogh... It's worth $100 million. So you have these ratios where materially identical objects 
have value ratio differentials of like one to 10 million. And of course, the whole source of that value differential is an attribution to Vincent van Gogh. So that's going to produce the economic incentive to produce forgeries of the biggest names. Uh, yeah, quite a bit of incentive. Mm -hmm. We have developed a, a profile of forgers. The things that tend to come out are they are usually a frustrated artist in their own right who doesn't feel their career has achieved the levels it should and often are resentful. Another characteristic is they're often critiqued as having an out-of-date style. So they so, say, well, why don't I use that to my so advantage? So they just insert themselves into the period they believe they belonged in. <laughs> so, for example, Elmir de Hori, who's a Hungarian art forger who I, I've worked on a lot. He's quite famous in the 19, late 1960s. A book came out about him, told his whole story. It was written by Clifford Irving. Um, and then Clifford Irving uh, then forged an autobiography of Howard Hughes, which he actually just made up. Uh, and was prosecuted for that. Uh, and Orson Welles found the whole thing so fascinating that he made his last film about them. It's called F for Fake, and it's a brilliant movie. And uh, I've studied him for a long time. He went after uh, Picasso, Matisse, and especially Modigliani. So early 20th century Parisian modernism, which was a period he kind of had this affinity to. Yeah. And, and so how successful was he? How much money do you think he made? Well, he didn't make much money himself. As many forgers are, they're really hostage to a dealer who's in on the scam. Um, okay. His whole lifestyle from when he left Hungary after the war and tried to settle in Paris and started forging Picassos around 1946 to around 1968, crossing the United States, Brazil, uh, all over Europe and eventually working out of the island of Ibiza, uh, where he had a villa, where he had a secret studio. But it was really his dealers who were making all the money. And it just all sounds so romantic. Oh, it was. And, and I mean, believe me, he's quite a character. Uh, Clifford Irving's first book about him, uh, Fate, it was a bestseller because he named names and told all the auction houses uh, uh, that he sold through, and it was huge wow. scandals. Oh, all yeah. the museums where his artworks were hanging. And he was always kind of... Um, Bon vivant. He, he loved um, the good life. And um, he really had a lot of glamorous friends. And that's not made up. Like his best friend who lived practically next door was Ursula Andress, the first Bond girl. Um, <laughs> and she really was a very close friend of his. And that's one of the reasons why Wells made the movie about him. Yeah. And so yes. how was he discovered? How do you go about uh, discovering a What happened was his forger. dealers who were based in Paris, and, and you have to read the Clifford Irving book, which yeah. largely a lot of it is not true. We've researched it because we've been doing a documentary uh, with some Spanish filmmakers on the true story of Elmer, and what we find is almost everything he tells in that book, and none of that is true. <laughs> but it's still an amazing story, and I suggest anyone who wants a great read to read it, especially about his dealers, who were these two guys kind of in a relationship with each other, but like entirely petty and hateful and spiteful, and eventually just their little spats blew up in their face, and they got caught. Then it was traced back to Elmir, but uh -huh. he was on Ibiza, which is in Spain, 
And it took almost six years before the extradition request for Elmir was going to kick in. And in 1976, he committed suicide rather than be extradited to France. But it was his dealers who it blew up on. And it was when they had sold a whole bunch to this guy named Meadows, who is the great patron of the SMU University Museum. And he had bought all of all this, what we would call Fauvist period. So Dufy, Durain, um, Matisse, and they were all forgeries. And that's when he figured out that actually he'd been buying from Elmer's dealers and they were all made by Elmer. So the lesson in that, I guess, is if you're going to be a forger, first of all, don't do it. Second, if you're going to be a forger, make sure of your dealers. Yeah, you know, a lot of what we study and when I teach these classes to my students about particularly about art forgery, which is what I deal in, um, I emphasize a lot of the times it's the dealer who's really doing what we call the corruption of knowledge. So all the successful art forgers didn't just make a convincing forgery. You don't get that far with a good forgery just on its own. You have to corrupt knowledge. And what does that mean, corrupting Well, knowledge? that can mean a big feature in the art world is what we call provenance. Provenance is where has this artwork been, who has owned it, where was it bought and sold ideally traced all the way back to when the artist made it. Now, um, gaps in a provenance can lead to suspicions that this is a forgery that appeared mm -hmm. during that time. So good forgers construct provenance um, to explain where this artwork came from, who had it, why they had it. Like Elmir's dealer's cases, they would corrupt documents, create fake authentication papers or customs documents. Or in one case, one of their most brilliant uh, moves, according to Almir, is that uh, back in the 1930s, art books were different. They were printed on two different types of paper. All the text was on a sort of yellowish printed paper. But then the reproductions of the artworks were on a more expensive, glossy paper. And they would all be inserted at the back of the art book, one after the other, and they would be lightly glued into the book. And that's because people who would buy an expensive art book would often remove one of these so they could frame it and hang it on their wall. And that's what it was designed to do. So what their dealers did was they took a 1930s era book by Matisse, and there was a picture of a painting by Matisse, Lady in a Red Hat. They removed the plate had Almir paint a Matisse-esque painting of a lady in a red hat, had it printed and then glued back into the book. And then when people would come into the gallery, they would see Almir's fake Matisse, and then they would open up the book. And there it is. And there it is. So they're, in essence, forging the entire history yes. Of, a, yes. of a piece of art, and I would assume eroding everyone's confidence. Yes, and that's why we call it the corruption of knowledge, and that's process. why forgery is a threat, because it truly constructs false historical narratives that can have all kinds of repercussions and uh you know well like what i mean well help right. us understand a good example of what this can result in is for example um during the second world war there was a church that was damaged during bombings and the result though was that a lot of the plaster that had been on the walls fell off revealing underlying remnants of Romanesque frescoes that mm. had been whitewashed. So a famous medieval fresco conservator was hired to do this. But he and his son were actually kind of lazy, and they used this assistant who was rather untrained but made very good frescoes. And he didn't try to restore anything. He just painted straight from 
his own mind and for models, since he couldn't use any real <laughs> models, he would use uh, portraits of Greta Garbo. And he painted all of these <laughs> Romanesque fresco scenes. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. It was considered a miracle that the frescoes had actually been revealed by the bombing and everyone was very excited when it was finally um, uh, unveiled. He had actually, in the little incidental animals and foliage, he had painted a turkey. <laughs> okay, now why is that an issue? Well, well, a turkey's a New World animal. Right, indigenous to North America. Exactly. It, it didn't occur to him. Um, and of course, these frescoes are in theory from like 1100. So the Germans, and this is during the Nazi period, interpreted as proof that Germanic Vikings had made it to the New World. And brought turkeys back with here's them. Here's a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I'm talking where forgery can truly corrupt large-scale knowledge. And... Um, in the wrong hands can be rationale for all kinds of oh, weird ideas. All kinds ideas. of ideas, exactly, because artworks are themselves often very important documents. And if you study the history of Europe, you can see how quickly iconic paintings can take on mass historical interpretations. Well, up to and including um, UFOs. Yes. <laughs> yes. In, the, in the landscape, <laughs> you know, there are those kinds of yes, uh, ideas exactly. out there too. mentioned this concept of super pricing. Yeah. And that brings us to sort of the next hat that you wear, yeah. which is an appraiser. If I get this right, a yeah. certified uh -huh. appraiser of impressionist and modernist art. Yes. And there are only 27 of you in the world. Yeah. It's a special status. You have to pass a very grueling exam where you have to identify uh, 10 paintings correctly with no mistake and price them correctly with no mistake. Wait a minute. One of those is a very subjective. Uh, of, yes. Uh, um, they will tell you that you need to study the recent sales histories from I Sotheby's see. and Christie's in the last two years. So the layman's question yeah. to you is yeah. how the heck do you arrive at a price of millions and millions of dollars for a piece of art. What, what's a short list of criteria that you okay. use? So first of all, okay, first of all, you have to understand, art is also special, among other things, uh, because its values can bounce anywhere between zero and 100. In other words, they have perfect elasticity. Or as I <laughs> more bluntly put it, nobody needs this crap. It's mm. not a commodity. Mm -hmm. There's no essential demand for it and mm -hmm. therefore really demand and pricing accordingly can just bounce just up and down. For example, one one thing that really was a large phenomenon around 10 years ago is what we call the brown furniture market collapse. I started my career in Eastern Europe shipping antique furniture, Biedermeier, uh, Baroque furniture, Art Nouveau furniture, Art Deco furniture. And then all of a sudden, designers, interior designers in New York City around 2006 decided that this was all just brown furniture. It didn't matter if it was Louis XIV or George III. It was just brown furniture. It didn't matter <laughs> if it was mahogany or walnut or cherry. It was just brown furniture. What prompted that? Do you have any idea? Uh, possibly overpricing. Hmm. So the 
wave that I rode in my early career was the what we call the Antiques Roadshow, which really was when antiques really became very fashionable and started to become quite valuable, especially finer European furniture. And then that market got saturated. As markets do. As, as they do. And so that look was associated with the elderly viewership who tend to watch the Antiques Roadshow and got identified as what we may call a grandma style. And at the same time, these designers were turning their attention towards what was much cheaper, which was what we call mid-century, and new design. And, and that's good for new designers. That is nice that they're buying furniture design now. But at the same time, art markets or antique markets are often very small. And if one or two of the collectors die and their kids inherit it and don't want it and put it back on the market, the other three collectors buy up cheaply and the dealers who deal in it are ruined and mm-hmm. the market collapses. It doesn't take much to flood things. It doesn't things. take much to flood a market and to collapse prices. Hmm. And as a result, it can be very difficult to value stuff. And what we base our valuations on, ideally, when we're making an appraisal, is auctions because those are believed to generally be public, reliable, It's what people are actually willing to pay for something. Right. And so auctions are good as long as they're reputable. Now, one problem I remember in Hungary was a phenomenon that happened there. It happened in a really bad way in China, and it really caused lack of confidence in the Chinese art market, and it was called the hidden reserve. What that meant was a painting by a certain painter uh, would be put up at auction, at a Hungarian auction house. And... It would appear to sell for like $20,000. That's a lot of money in Hungarian art market. In reality, the last real bidder who was really willing to pay anything for this would probably petered out at about $10,000. And the owner of the painting, essentially the seller, had plants or the auction house had plants in the audience to continue to pump the price to $20,000, at which point it would be as we would say hammered. And uh, that price would be published in the official results that the auction house would put out on their webpage. One auction house was just notorious for just wildly, ridiculously successful auctions where they would sell like 98% of their sales items, which never happens at mm-hmm. auctions. Auctions, mm-hmm. at most auctions, sell about 50%, and the other 50% don't sell. And also, almost every piece seemed to double over its you know, opening bid. And it just didn't seem real. And also, you know, I knew, because I was the guy who shipped art out of the country, that was my main job, was like an exporter. And I knew these weren't foreign buyers, because I would have known if they were. And so in theory, it was all local Hungarian buyers, but it just seemed fishy. It didn't seem right. And it turns out that what was going on was this, that, you know, there'd be plants, they would pump the price up to $20,000. In fact, no sale would occur. Um, The owner would get the painting back unsold, But what would have happened was a certain price point had been defended. Mm. And the market would interpret it as this guy is worth $20,000 rather than $10,000. And so you did have all this dumb money in Hungary that was buying them at those prices. And I love you have a name for this. This is the hidden reserve Hidden caper. reserve, yeah. And it really, it caused the Hungarian art market to collapse in 2000. 
and seven because around, everyone lost confidence well so around the time of the recession which hit hungary particularly hard uh all these mini millionaires or whatever who were in hungary uh wanted to all of a sudden redeem their art for the cash values they thought they were worth only to find out that they weren't worth a fraction of that mm. and the same notorious auction house wouldn't hold an auction for two years because they didn't want to face the music <laughs> and prices in the hungarian art market have never recovered so you've mentioned several times that you started off your career in Hungary. Mm -hmm. And even before that, yeah. you were a Peace Corps volunteer yeah, there. Was. One of the first wave of yeah, Peace Corps we, volunteers. Yeah, we were the first ones. And by that we mean to enter Eastern Europe Yeah, or yeah. after the collapse of the Soviet exactly. Union. Exactly. In fact, I found out it was when uh, the first President Bush traveled to Hungary in early 1989 because Hungary had had a large role in the eventual process that led to the fall of the Berlin Wall and wanted to reward them with an aid package, which turned out to be Peace Corps volunteers. Mm. And so we went the following year in 1990, and it was 60 going to Hungary and 60 going to Poland, and we were the first ones to go to Eastern Europe. And Peace Corps volunteers are chosen because of some necessary specialty. What was yours? My parents made me do it. <laughs> Um, if you fill out the Peace Corps application, it's a very depressing, uh, humbling experience. I mean, you're just going That's through what pages heard, and yeah. pages of things you've never done. Like, I don't know fisheries. I don't know how to do CPR. I need to learn beekeeping. I don't know beekeeping. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't know anything. I've managed to sort of take some experience I had at Oberlin as a writing tutor and kind of twist it and mangle it and misrepresent it as sounding like teaching experience. Um, and I was just lucky that these... This program came up so fast that Peace Corps needed English teachers really fast and kind of lowered the standards mm -hmm. right at the moment for me to get it. <laughs> but I do say my parents made me do it. My mom was like, Jeff, you should do Peace Corps. And I'm like, Mom, that's like doing the CIA because we were yeah, in right. We were so suspicious of the federal government that – Absolutely. Peace Corps was suspicious. So, so anyway, I got, I got in and uh, – I didn't expect to go to – there was no word about that. So when you when you do Peace Corps, you, yeah, you get thinking, accepted. You don't know where you're going. You're thinking Peru or – Yeah, Peru, Africa, something where they had gone. And they were like, you're going to Hungary. I'm like, say, uh, you say don't what? go to Hungary. <laughs> I guess we do now. <laughs> so, so that's how it happened, yeah. Were you already involved in the – art world at that time? No, I didn't, this know in I didn't know anything. I'd taken one art history class as an undergrad. I think I got a C minus on it or well, something. So how does that happen? I mean, you've had such a huge trajectory. It was when I went to Hungary. At that point, finally, I think I was really ready to embrace art. I was really getting curious about it in my last years of college and went to Hungary. And I fell in love with the architecture of the period they call the secession period. We would call it Art Nouveau. And so the period of the late... Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then mm -hmm. kind of studying that whole Belle Epoque period, because it's also when all the great writers are working, and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of it's a golden age of Budapest coffee house life and everything going on around it. So I really spent a lot of my Peace Corps years kind of studying and observing that period, and once I started working after Peace Corps, I had some money, but not enough to buy a whole Art Nouveau building, but I could buy Art Nouveau furniture and realize that there were great bargains in the Hungarian antiques market. And what motivated your decision to stay in Hungary rather than, okay, I'm done with the Peace Corps, I'm going back to Ohio? 
to punish my parents for making me do the piece of time. No, <laughs> uh, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to stay here for 20 years. It was like from year to year. Yeah. There was always something to do. Like the first year I was working as a trainer, training other Peace Corps volunteers. And that was a good job. And then I got a rotary scholarship to go to the Central European University mm. where I did my master's. And then I was offered a job at the Open Society Institute, which is George Soros's NGO in the region and attached to my university. And that seemed like an exciting thing to do. And I did that for about three years and then realized that I was more interested in Art Nouveau architecture than I was in human rights. Sorry. <laughs> we, um, we're going to broadcast that. No, no. I do really like human rights too. I Don't get me wrong. I just, <laughs> I just decided as a career move. And also, you know, working in the NGO world was like really cool. Like we were doing all these projects in the former Soviet Union. And it was great, except actually sometimes it was really just sending a fax to Kazakhstan. That was the extent of it. You're right. So I decided I wanted to do something that was tangible. And that's mm -hmm. when I, a friend of mine pointed out that no one was actually doing the shipping of art and antiques out of Hungary because it was complicated and you needed to get cultural heritage export permits and nobody knew how to do that. But I could speak fluent Hungarian. So it was something I could do. Fascinating. But um, I'm going to give you an opportunity now to finally come clean. Are you an employee of the CIA? I've always thought that that would be a cool cover, but um, actually, no. Like I mean, I you said, seem to know an awful lot about these international capers and schemes, yeah. and it just seems a little suspicious. A little suspicious, yeah. I do know a lot of characters from Eastern Europe, but you know, the stakes we were playing for were kind of minor, like the value of art and antiques, like. $10,000, $20,000, like right. sneeze change by like New York standards. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how do you wind up in a small town in Western Colorado? United States town? At well, it's, it's, it's because of the program. I, you know, I was teaching at SUNY Purchase before here and I really knew what kind of graduate program my kind of students needed because I was teaching mostly undergrads and they needed a master's degree program that was specifically about the art business, but the whole art business, whether that's museums or galleries or the nonprofit sector or art fairs. And most programs are, they're in arts administration and they are basically, you know, six performing arts professors and an afterthought they have an adjunct teaching a gallery class or something, mm -hmm. you know. And it's like, no, that's not what my students need. They want art business, not performing arts business. Mm -hmm. And so this was a program that was just really designed for it. And the thing is, the competition are like NYU, Christie's, Sotheby's. They're going to cost $100,000. And you're going to have to be a resident student in New York City. And my students, they didn't have that kind of money. And our program, I really believed, was the right thing, especially for what I would call the working art professional, which is almost all of our students are, A, already working in the art business in some way, either as a teacher or at a gallery or at a museum. And this is a graduate program that works for them. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the economics of art, mm -hmm. I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. The term starving artist has mm -hmm. followed, followed me my entire life. Has there ever been a time when the term starving artist didn't apply? No, no. And this is one of the problems with, you know, you see people moaning on Facebook about how, you know, our arts programs are terrible. And it's like there never was a golden age. Mm -hmm. There always were a few privileged artists who did make a living and maybe even lived well but they were a small fraction of artists. And the fact is, more creatives make their living from being creative now than ever before. And, and why is that? Do you think that's because 
of the big box retail market? Is that because of the internet? Why? So, for example, you know, just an innovative feature like Etsy, which is allowing so many craft makers to more systematically reach their markets. And that kind of market access has never existed before. It was always much more indirect and going through merchants and mm -hmm. gatekeepers. Gatekeepers, yeah. And also the fact that the ethos of supporting your local creatives is stronger now than it's ever been before. We're still buying our Christmas gifts at the local Christmas fair. Exactly. And this is, you know, one of the things I do here in the Valley is I serve on the Crested Butte Creative District Commission. And, you know, at the holiday times, we really promote the idea of do your gift shopping, you know, from these creatives and mm. these local creative institutions. Well, on that uplifting and positive note, thanks for joining me, Jeff. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you. Radio is a production of Alan Wardus Media. To contact Alan, visit alanwardusmedia.com. The show's producer is Issa Forrest. Original music by Issa Forrest. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another great conversation on Think Radio.